Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Amen. The word of the Lord may humble our hearts. We've been in the series going through the book of Exodus, and we've been privileged to be in the series of plagues and Quite frankly, from a pastoral perspective, I'm seeing that I was assigned to this text a month ago was daunting. How do you preach on plagues, especially for like six weeks in a row? What do we say? God did this. Stop sinning. Don't harden your hearts anymore. Next. But we've been wrestling with this as a, as a staff, and I've been thinking about this YouTube video that I watched. Um, actually, I watch it at least once a month now, but it, I first saw it seven years ago living in, I think it was San Diego at the time. The title of the video was When Animals Attack. And for some reason, that was enticing to me. Generally on YouTube, I just watch sports highlights or um, celebrity interviews gone wrong or awkward, whatever, just because they make me feel better about myself. <laughs> and I clicked on this video, and it was about 40 seconds long. And there was this woman from Nebraska, and she was somewhere foreign. I don't, know, I don't really know where it was, and the signs in the background were in a different language. And there was a tiger laying on the ground with a chain around its neck and a chain around its stomach and a chain on both of its hind legs. But this giant tiger, which is one of the largest carnivorous mammals on earth, was lying there panting in the middle of the day. And this woman was standing there next to this tiger. And for me, I don't do certain things. I don't jump out of a plane if the plane's not going to crash. I don't want to climb the Alps because I can see it from the ground very clearly. I don't want to risk my life and eat certain bugs on earth where it's a 50-50 chance. Like, if you ever go to Japan, I will not eat blowfish with you. Why? I don't need to feel numb. <laughs> NyQuil's just enough for me. And I was watching this video, and I was wondering, is this the video where the tiger is going to all of a sudden spring forth, and something was interesting, and nothing happened in the video. This woman was just standing there looking at the tiger, and the tiger's trainer was standing there looking at the tiger, and the tiger was looking forward and panting in the air in the mid-afternoon hot air, and, and it was just kind of going on. And just before I was going to click out, someone said, go ahead, and this woman sits on the back of this tiger. Now, I love tigers. Um, Korean, it's our whatever national animal. And she sits on this tiger, and immediately you get that feeling in your stomach where, like, that was not smart. Don't do that. 
And then she proceeded to go from the back of the tiger's butt area to shuffle forward towards the shoulders, and you could see that the tiger begins to not enjoy this. And then here's the kicker. She gets to the front, right behind the tiger's shoulders, and right when people are counting down, three, two, one, look over here, look over here, she begins to bounce up and down on the back of this tiger, and predictably, what does the tiger do? It roars, it spins around, knocks the woman off, and it, with its face, which is this big, it's PG, don't worry, it doesn't bite her and there's not blood in it everywhere, but with its face, it pushes this woman to the ground and begins to shake its face and growl. No one knows if she's alive or if she exists anymore. <laughs> Presumably in the comments they said, oh, this was shown, I don't know, in Omaha, Nebraska, and she's okay, she's, she lives in Omaha. But I was watching this video, and I replayed it three or four more times, just wondering, why would you do this? And then I went through the comments, and I began to look, and half the comments were upset. We need to kill this tiger and hunt it down and find its cousin's mom's neighbor's friend and hunt those tigers down, and we need to kill all these tigers and get rid of them. And then the other half were predictably saying what? That was that woman's fault. She deserves not only to be mauled, but more. Who gets on a tiger, an apex predator on earth, and then proceeds to annoy it by jumping up and down on its back? Now, personally, I think she got what she deserved. If you wake up your wife or your husband from a nap in a wrong way, you get what you deserve. <laughs> Don't look in this direction right now. But that was an interesting thing for me, and especially in the third and fourth plagues of what we're going through right now, we look at the glory of God and the majesty of God, and we think of it as his people, as something that is beautiful and great and powerful and protective. But much like with the tiger that I admire, I will admire it with awe. I will admire it with its beauty is unsurpassed and its power and grace is amazing. But I will also admire it from behind bars and four-inch plate glass. Why? Because as amazing as it is, it terrifies me. And as God's chosen people, I, I, I don't doubt that we are in awe or we welcome or we enjoy the glory of God, but I don't think we understand the awe and the sheer power and terror of it and what that means for us. The plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt are a warning of judgment and punishment for their unfaithful arrogance against God. But there's also this revelation of who God is in his glory. It's an extension of his grace to Israel to follow him. It's actually an extension of grace to Egypt to bow down in humility before God. And it's actually even an extension of mercy to Pharaoh to remind him, listen, man, you are not God. And no matter how many of your people say you are an idol, you are a God on earth, you are a human being in the presence of a God who is majestic, powerful, good, righteous, and also so powerful that he is terrifying. Verses 16 through 17, Moses writes, God speaking to Aaron and Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now there's two questions that I have here. One, why the specific word strike? He uses it twice, 16 and 17. To strike something, especially in the biblical context, context, means to make dead, to injure, to harm, to ruin, to destroy. It's an act of intentional, willful violence. God intends to reveal his sovereignty, his power, his glory, the things that we think we see as this plush little tiger teddy bear. 
but he intends to reveal his sovereignty, his glory, and his power by striking or bringing harm to his enemies in the land of Egypt. He's going to destroy. He's going to punish. His righteousness is against those who disobey and stand against him. So Aaron and Moses do so. And sure enough, God's glory is revealed by the very dust of the land turning into gnats. And here's the second question. I don't know what a gnat is. I lived in Michigan. We don't have gnats there. We, Sunland has a lot of things, a lot of animals, and a lot of insects. And if you're here at night and listen very carefully, you will hear them scurrying along the roof tiles. But they're not gnats. Those are what we call mice. He says gnats in 16, 17, and 18, and biblically what I found out was gnats is a reference to any small winged insect or lice or tiny little insect that flies, that bites, that annoys, that stirs conflicts, that causes discomfort and bleeding, that spreads disease. In other words, a gnat is any small thing that disrupts shalom and peace. It's your worst nightmare in insect form, but not just one or two in the room with a nice fan and air conditioning. It's multiplied by the dust of the earth. And this is a shocking revelation, meaning that every beast and man and woman was not just discomforted by, but covered by pestilence. Now, because I want to experience this as I was researching for this last week, I YouTube gnats swarming. And I watched seven seconds of a video that was about two minutes long, and I couldn't do it anymore because I felt that they were all over me. I can't stand gnats. I can't stand insects. And it was so bad that this man who was living in squalor in Iowa was, was so covered in gnats in his home that they were coming out of his nostrils and ears. Now, multiply that by everybody. Multiply that by every animal. It causes creation to be less than what it was created to be, less than what we were meant to do in the eyes of God. The land that was created to sustain, to feed, to protect us is now twisted in the judgment of the glory of God against his enemies to demand punishment, to make uncomfortable, to take away life, and to cause suffering. And the significance of gnats coming from dust are, one, it's a connection to Genesis 3.19 where it says, for dust you are and to dust you will become. In other words, especially in the Old Testament, any reference to dust means death. So the fact that God commands Aaron and Moses to strike the dust of the earth, which is death, and that that dust, which is death, turns into gnats and causes suffering, means that we are in our disobedience to God headed towards, hurtling towards death, a deserved death. In verses 18 through 19, we see the famed magicians of Pharaoh try to replicate this thing. They're walking around the desert and striking the ground with their staff and, and, and shouting incantations, and they could not do what the Lord God had done. And this is a gigantic cliffhanger here because for the first two plagues, they could imitate and emulate what God had done. But here, God puts his foot down and says, you will go no further. And I will begin to distinguish between what is mine and what is not mine. I will begin to distinguish and differentiate between who I am and who you are. You can no longer do anything. And what's shocking here, and the, my favorite part of the text is the, the magicians of Pharaoh, the very yes men who try to support Pharaoh's ideal that he is a God himself, go up to him and they say, we can't do this, number one. And two, this is the finger of God, Yahweh, Elohim. In other words, they're saying, maybe this guy is for real. 
Maybe he is who he says he is. Maybe he is more powerful than we are. Maybe he is serious. And maybe we ought to listen to him. The confidence of Egypt is beginning to crack. And yet Pharaoh, almost admirably in his stupidity and stubbornness, in verse 19 says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. The second plague for today comes from verses 20 through 24. Moses says in 20, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Now, I know that from a first reading, we can't really understand this, but God is getting into the business of Pharaoh because he says to Moses, don't go into Pharaoh's courtroom or throne room and talk to him when he's ready and prepared. He says, go early in the morning when Pharaoh goes out to look at the water. Now, this is a beautiful reference, meaning this is Pharaoh's first act in the early morning light when he goes to reflect on his majesty, his power, and his kingdom, to look at the source of life, the Nile, and to think, I'm the man. And God in his glory so wants to disrupt this false identity that he says to Moses, get all up in his business. Go to his happy place, his comfort zone. Disrupt his, his well-being. So the first thing he sees in the morning is you. And the place that he sees you in the morning is in his safe zone. And say to him, let my people go. And the warning here is flies. And all, this, all these threats against Moses or against Pharaoh come through Moses and he says, if you don't listen, if you don't listen, this is what's going to happen to you. Flies will come and destroy the land of Egypt. But he says something interesting in this plague for the first time in any of the plagues. He says in 22 through 23, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people, and tomorrow this sign shall happen. Now, as I was reading this, I began to wonder, oh, wait, go back. So for the first three plagues, were the people of Israel experiencing all this? Did their water turn to blood? Did the frogs come and make their homes uninhabitable? Were they covered in gnats? And every single theologian and pastor that had studied this and wrote about it says implicitly God's people were protected from the plagues against Egypt. But God here formally or explicitly for the first time is saying to Pharaoh and his people, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, these are my people, and these are my enemies. In other words, he's delineating, he's setting boundaries, he's drawing the line in the sand. And he says, those who multiply and extol my glory will be protected and set apart. And those who fight against the glory of heaven will not only be destroyed or punished, but they'll be wiped off the face of the earth in suffering. Flies are the first plague that explicitly brings destruction to the land. In verse 24, that word ruins literally means destroyed. And so I have the privilege of talking about insects today. And I don't know if you've noticed this as we've been going through the plagues, but the first two plagues were about water. And Pastor Michael shared this beautifully. Water is the sign and symbol of Egypt's authority, identity, and power. The Nile River was literally seen as the life-giving God, and God immediately starts there and says, Nah, it's not yours, it's mine. And he turns the water into blood, and he brings frogs out of the midst of it. 
The second plague with the gnats had to do with the land. And so God is not so only saying, I'm over the water, but I'm over the land. And even the land obeys my authority and glory. And finally here with the flies, he's saying not only the water, not only the land, but the air. In other words, what God is saying here is I am completely sovereign, and I am completely in control, and I am completely knowledgeable of all things and every aspect of creation. I'm from Calvin Seminary, so I would get my reformed license revoked if I didn't say at this point. There's a famous man who was named Kuiper for some reason, and he's only remembered for this one quote. There's not one inch of creation where God does not say, this is mine. Not one. God sends swarms of flies to destroy, not to pester, not like at a picnic, but to destroy. And you know what's difficult about these flies? The actual word is not even flies. It's a large winged insect that bites human beings to destroy the land. We didn't read through it, but in verses 25 through 32, Pharaoh and Moses kind of go through this dialogue of political savvy. As his people are are being tormented by gnats and flies, as the land of Egypt is being destroyed by these winged creatures, Pharaoh finally goes to Moses and says, fine, please make it stop. Go to your God, make your sacrifices as long as it's in Egypt, and ask God to stop. And Moses says, we can't do it here. Because remember, the thing was that you have to let me, my brother, and our people go outside of Egypt to worship and offer sacrifices. And Pharaoh says, no, you got to do it here. And Moses says, no, we can't do it here. Because we don't want to offend you. We don't want to offend the people of Egypt. It's kind of messing with him right here. And Pharaoh says, finally, okay, just you. You can go outside of Egypt, but hurry up and do it. Sacrifice, worship God, and ask God to stop and relent from these flies from destroying my land and my people. And so Moses says, okay, go. I'll go and I'll pray for you, and I'll do what you ask me to do. And so he goes, he prays, and the flies stop immediately by the authority of God. And the beauty of Exodus 8.32 is this, but Pharaoh again hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. What does this mean for us? There's a couple of things I want to leave in our hearts and our minds today. The first one is this. God's glory is God's glory in power and in place. God's glory is God's glory in power and in place. And what I mean by that is this. If anything, the plagues of Egypt must reveal to our hearts and our minds that when we consider the sovereignty and the righteousness of God, which almost every single person in this room has uttered in some kind of Christianese social media text or kind of some kind of prayer. When it comes to the sovereignty and righteousness of God, it is exactly that. It's God's sovereignty and God's righteousness. It is not how we define it or how we expect it or how we want him to be expressed. Now, I know that, not, that might sound like normal English and not advanced to us, but here's what I mean by this. How often when we talk about the love of God and the sovereignty of God and the righteousness of God, do we mean what I think it should be, what I think it should sound like, what I think God should do? Playing with nieces and nephews is one of my favorite things to do at this church. And I say nieces and nephews because I hope their parents like me and see me. Well, you know, that's not the point. But if you ever play in the pastoral office with these kids, when we play games, the rules don't apply to them. Uh, I was playing with one of the girls, and we were playing what I thought was poker. I mean, I wasn't teaching them poker, but we were play- <laughs> that's not the point. Let's just rewind. We were playing 
Candyland. Um, and and we, were, we were going along, and I had three pair. I don't know how you have three pair, but I had three pair. And she had nothing, nothing. I was going to destroy her. And finally, after betting Skittles or M&Ms or whatever it was that day, we, we opened the cards, and, and in very much confidence, I said, three pair, what do you have? She put down her cards, and she says, I have three cards. And I was like, you lose, sucker. Their parent was not in the room. And she looked at me, and she said, no, no. I win. <laughs> I said, okay, that's okay. Because next time I'm going to have three, three cards and I'm going to win. So that next time I deal myself three cards and I give her 13 cards. And she's just doing all this stuff. And then we bet and I look at her and I'm reading her face and all this stuff is happening. And all right, what do you have? And she goes, I have 17 cards. I don't know how she got 17, but she took some more. And I said, ha, I have three cards. I win. And she says, nope. I win. And I said, why? I have more cards than you. And I said, your parents are going to enjoy your teenage years. <laughs> she gets to choose who wins and when and why. She gets to choose. And listen, I'm not bitter. I'm a mature 36, 37-year-old man, and my, my self-assurance is in Christ alone and all that stuff. <laughs> but the thing is that she gets to choose who wins, where, and how. And she even got to choose during that game where at that table that I would sit and what I was allowed to drink because apparently coffee was not allowed that day, but I could drink a Capri Sun. <laughs> now, I'm glad we find this funny, but when we experience hardship and suffering, when we try to make sense of all these things happening in the world and we talk about the presence and the role of God and we talk about his righteousness and his sovereignty, do we speak out of reverence to who he reveals himself to be, or do we think, my God is dot, dot, dot? Recently, I had a phone call from a friend in a church, and there was a visitor that came at a small church, and this person was gay. And that's not that big of a deal. But he overheard one of his greeters saying to the person, hey, just, this is a weird question, but are you gay? And this visitor said, yes. And he goes, my God doesn't really welcome or love gay people. My God? My God? God's glory and power is complete. God's glory and power is revealed in the plays, and it's not just a soft teddy bear, but it is terrifying because it is for God's glory, it is by God's glory as he determines and as he calls. And the problem that he has with Pharaoh in Egypt is not that they're just that world power at that moment and he has to destroy them. The problem is that they do not acknowledge God as who he says he is, the great I am, Yahweh, Elohim. And in that, there is judgment. And the thing that I find fascinating about myself is that when I deny God, when I try to redefine God or fit him into my human machinations of understanding, and when it does not go well, or when I'm convicted, or when I am hurting myself or others, I harden my heart against God instead of confessing in repentance. God's power cannot be limited, defined, or even made acceptable from a perspective of human wisdom or understanding. So again, I ask you this question. When it comes to the power and glory of God, do we acknowledge and obey him if and only if it makes sense to us? Or do we truly seek to know who God says he is as he reveals and do we live in obedience to that? The second point I want to leave with us is this. God's glory reveals our brokenness and brings judgment against his enemies. 
The plagues are not mere punishment as an end in itself, but the revelation of our lack in righteousness. And even then, it's not eternal condemnation. It's an opportunity to confess and to repent and to draw near to God. Here's the greatest thing that I've discovered in relationships, not only after I've gotten married, but as I've grown up. There's a rule that I'm not allowed to talk about her anymore. When two people come together after conflict, and when at least one of them says, what do you want to do? That's not just a signal to fight. That's a signal of a desire to reconcile. And so God is engaging Egypt. God is engaging Pharaoh because in their disobedience and sin, he could have just smited them. But he doesn't smite them. I love that word. And he says, here are the plagues and here's me revealing myself to you, not only so that you would be disciplined and punished for your disobedience and sin, but so that you would recognize the sovereignty and the righteousness of heaven. And that in humility, you would recognize and say, this is Yahweh and return to him. God continues to point out to Pharaoh in Egypt that they stand in disobedience to the righteous glory of God and their refusal to let his people go. And just as the light shining in the darkness reveals what's in the room, the righteousness of God reveals the brokenness of who we are. But the problem with that is that some of us don't want to know how broken you and I are. My mother-in-law and I were talking recently, and she asked me, how is that gym membership going? Um, I shared with you a couple months ago that for my Christmas present, she said, what do you need? And I said, nothing. And so she said, cool. So then she went to Costco and got me a two-year gym membership. (laughs) That's fine. I I get it. (laughs) I know that she didn't mean it as like a, you're fat type of thing, but she was genuinely looking out for my future and well-being because I'm going to be a father and all this stuff. And, and, and it, was, it was innocuous. It was just a normal conversation. We were having dinner. My father-in-law was late. Charlene was in Irvine. We were just having a quick snack. And she said, how's the gym going? And I was immediately racked with guilt. Why? Because I had been sick for two weeks because a certain pastor at this church infected me with his dirtiness. <laughs> Um, I was busy. We have all this stuff happening, retreats coming up. People's lives are falling apart, and I have to meet with them to save them and give them wisdom so that I go, oh, my gosh, what a wise man. All this stuff was happening, and God forbid that I forgot to go to the gym for two, six weeks. It just didn't happen. But in that moment, she wasn't accusing me, but she said, how is the gym going in a loving mother-in-law way? And I love my mother-in-law. We get along great. And immediately I was not only wrapped with guilt, but I was so annoyed at her. (laughs) And in my head, the way that I work, it's guilt? Why would you say that? Now I got to go put on another shirt to cover myself. And if, you're, if you think that I'm that fat, why would you make me food all the time and then make me eat breakfast when you know I'm trying to lose weight by cutting out carbohydrates in the morning? I didn't want to face the fact that I had not gone to the gym because I had gotten lazy. And, the last, and to be truthfully dead honest with you, the last three times I went to the gym, two of those times, I felt, oh, I got here, so I'm just going to sit in the hot tub for 45 minutes <laughs> with the other 17 elderly people and hear about life insurance and health insurance for people over 70. And then I'm going to shower and go home. And honestly, in the car going home, I was like, I got to get sweat in today. I'm good. But we don't like our, our problems. We don't like our brokenness to be revealed. But the truth is that the righteousness and glory of God the righteousness and glory of God 
by, by essence, reveals our lack and our desperate need of him. And here's the second part of this point, and it might be a little bit harder, but as we read through the plagues, who do we identify with? Israel. The slaves, the protected, the ones that God loves and even sets apart and, and, and doesn't allow them to go through. But, and I'm going to say this sensitively because somebody prayed as I, they found out I was preaching that I would preach with sensitivity and compassion because apparently I don't do that enough. And let me say this sensitively. I am Pharaoh. More than I'm Israel in the text of Exodus, I'm actually Pharaoh. And by I, I mean you. <laughs> we are actually more like Pharaoh than we are Israel because we harden our hearts against God. In our vanity, in our self-idolatry, we want to build our lives, our children, our jobs, our homes, our cars, whatever it might be, to reflect the glory of ourselves. And we don't want to admit that submission and surrender to God means actually submitting and surrendering to God ruling as Lord, creator, and here's the harder part, king. The kingship of God here in his glory is the hard part because if the president of the United States tells us something, what do we say? Look on social media, not my president. I don't agree. But we don't understand the context of king, meaning he could walk into your house and say, your cow, that's my cow now. And we'll see in the, in the Old Testament later on as we go through the series, but literally the king could walk into your house and say, your child that you've raised for 14 years is now my servant. And you would have to let them go. Because it's not president, it's not vice regent, it's king. And this is the creator. This is the righteous one. This is the one who not only works for his glory, but our good. We are not innocent bystanders in this unfolding duel between God and Pharaoh. We are not only the ones in need of rescue and restoration and reconciliation. We are hope, helpless and lost, but we are also Pharaoh in our arrogance and in our pride. We harden our hearts against God's holiness. We seemingly accept his place as Savior when it is to our advantage and benefit on our terms, but we deny and reject God as king, ruler, sovereign, creator, and Lord. So where's the grace in the text? Here's the final point. God's glory still preserves and redeems his people. Despite the fact that we are broken, God continues to say as a foreshadowing of Christ's work on the cross, yet I will set apart my people and I will save them and I'll preserve them. Not because they are worthy, but because I am. Not because they will earn this one day, because, but because I have. God separates his people in Goshen from the rest of Egypt whom he judges that an unworthy people who are unable to justify or draw near to God, they are still chosen. This is the grace and this is the, this is the work of Christ on the cross. God chooses as his own people of a powerless people who are slaves, un unworthy, unfit, and yet he still says to them, you are mine and I am yours. And if you look beyond Exodus, I don't want to steal the thunder of future sermons coming, but if you look beyond the plague so far, what's going to happen here is that they are preserved to not only be rescued out of Egypt as from slavery, but they go through the Red Sea, 40 years in the wilderness, overtaking the land of Canaan, of giants who, who make war for fun, all the way through history to the cross of Christ, where a blameless and righteous man goes to the cross for a sinful and unrighteous people. 
Brothers and sisters, the glory of God is not only terrifying, but it is good. It not only points out our brokenness and need of him and condemns us in our sin, but the glory of God sets apart his people for his pleasure and his goodness. And the blood of Christ restores and redeems us. So the last question that I have for us is this. Do we trust that God in his infinite power and glorious grace not only acknowledges us, but will ultimately finish the work of redemption in joy, in faithfulness, and in hope? There are people in this room that have been wrestling with this idea. Maybe we feel convicted. Maybe we even knew that we were Pharaoh, but we were wrestling with this idea that God might be God, but he's not enough, and that we have to be wrong, compassionately. Maybe we're wrestling with this idea that God doesn't actually choose or love me, and I am unlovable or beyond the cusp of God's reach. Wrong, compassionately, absolutely wrong. The only hope that I have to offer here in Scripture is that the plagues reveal the glory of God, and the glory of God is powerful, it is terrifying, and yet it is good. And God is about restoring his people to his glory rather than leaving them in our condemnation. May this encourage and help us to respond with a compelling to obedience and a deepening faith in him. Let's pray. Father, first, thank you for who you are in the totality and the entirety of who you are as you say that you are. Thank you that you are good and that you are warm and compassionate. Thank you that you are Father and that you know in all of your omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence every single crevice and crack of our lives and of, of, and of all creation. And thank you that in all of this love and grace and mercy that you're also terrifying because if you weren't terrifying and powerful beyond our imagination, Father, it would mean that you weren't able to do the work that you've promised to do. Humble us in our arrogance and our vanity as pharaohs of our own kingdoms and lives. Humble us, Father God, too, in our minds to trust in the knowledge as you reveal it to us in Scripture and in Christ. Humble us, Father God, that we would not only know you, but that we would surrender and trust and in love and in obedience to you. And humble us, Father God, in the fact that you not only choose us when we are worthy, which is never, but that you choose us when we are unworthy, that you set us apart, that you consecrate, that you choose beforehand what you will do with your people as you have called us. We thank you that you are enough. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict and do only the work that you can um, and that in the entirety of this church, of this ministry, of these generations, Lord, that we would continue to walk out of our enslavement to our sin and vanity into the freedom, uh, regardless of whether it looks like the wilderness, for where you go, it is good. And Lord, that we would be able to follow and walk after you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.